0: are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, today's Dharma talk uh, is uh, reflections on the, uh, the chapter that we discussed last fortnight, uh, which is called What, what Practices? Just in general, when we, uh, when we are reading Joko back, and when we are discussing Joko, um, we don't want to set her up as the ultimate authority neither. Uh, so please uh, question, always question everything. You don't have to take everything she says as being <coughs> the truth. When we get to um, discussing the, uh, Barry's teaching, uh, we will see some basic, uh, slight, like, um, different emphases in his teaching. But primarily though I think we're trying to get across a good understanding, it's important to understand Joko's teaching as best we can. Um, I sent out an email recommending a documentary on her teacher, Maizumi Roshi. Uh, I don't know if anybody had a chance to View that video. Um, it's quite a well put together documentary. It goes for about 50 minutes and uh, it's, a, it's a fairly honest appraisal of his teaching. It includes interviews with some of his successors, especially Bernie Glassman, who was his first successor. And uh, it also includes interviews with his, uh, his, his widow, his wife, and uh, one of his daughters, or two of his daughters, one of whom is a singer-songwriter wife as an American woman. Um, the documentary is, uh, uh, has an honest discussion about the effects of his uh, consumption of alcohol. Um, it doesn't go into his uh, infidelities, but um, that was also the other aspect of what brought about the, uh, the tragic downfall. But again, to his credit, he did stay in the United States and uh, face the shame of what he had to go through. And uh, passed away in 1995. Um, <clears throat> so last week we spoke about how to put um, the kind of innovations in Joko's practice within that context. So you'll find a sort of sort of emphasis in her teachings leaning towards uh, you know reliance on practice. Um, I mean she does acknowledge the importance of going to a teacher, but she always puts practice as being, your own practice as being the most important uh, to rely upon. Uh, Not even the teacher, not even the relationship, she puts practice as being central to that which uh, uh, keeps our boat afloat in the ups and downs of of life. And uh, herself uh, having been uh, someone who went through a separation divorce, uh, she had four children Apparently uh, her husband had a mental illness, I don't know much about that, but um, she basically I think raised the kids and uh, and then went into Zen practice and established the San Diego Zen Center. So a lot of her life had that kind of self-reliance expression. <clears throat> the other important thing about uh, the uh, impact of uh, Mazumi because Mizumi, of course, was a Zen master who was accomplished both in uh, Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen. So he'd done the full uh, koan curriculum, including the curriculum of uh, the Kambo Sanden line and the Yatsutani line. So he'd done all the koans as well. So she was a little bit also disillusioned in koan practice and, and, and wanted to kind of uh, um, take the emphasis away from uh, the pushing for some kind of special experience uh, because she didn't think that was enough to um, undo some of the psychological problems that arose uh, That the uh, and, and sometimes the koan practice could be used as a form of emotional bypassing so one could be very accomplished uh, in spiritual practice and still have a lot of emotional problems that were kept in the shadows and not really looked at why well, she was one of the first uh, Zen teachers to place this emphasis on our emotional life. <clears throat> so <clears throat> in, <clears throat> she emphasizes, of course, sitting practice and everyday life practice, and the two go hand in hand. In other words, <clears throat> we sit in order to bring our practice into our everyday lives. And she talks about sitting practice being that idea of a simplified space and she talks a lot about the importance of sitting still. And sitting still can be very transformative. And when we're sitting still, paradoxically, we become more aware of subtle movements. Because life is always movement, even sitting still we're moving. So what are the couple of things we've become apparent to us? What what are the kind of movements we could become aware of when we're sitting still? What would be two? clear examples of a kind of movement that we become aware of when we're sitting still. Breathing. Okay. Breathing. So there's a sense of the expanding of the breath and uh, rising and falling of the breath. That's the constant movement. And heartbeat. Sorry? Heartbeat. Heartbeat, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so all that sort of... Uh, Internal movement, proprioception. And then, of course, there's the movement of the mind, the monkey mind. Constantly moving all the time, that internal chatter. So, and, uh, so she talks about in sitting practice and that simplified space and that still, stillness gives us that unique opportunity to face ourselves and start to get to know ourselves. Uh, Dogen Zenji talked about taking that backward step. In other words, in the sitting practice we can change our focus rather than constantly looking outwards all the time and observing other people and other other people's behavior. We're going outwards all the time. We actually move it around and come back inwards. And what we focus on is experience, our direct experience. And Another famous quote of Dogen Denji, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. So from Joko's point of view, the the studying of the self is when we start to label our thoughts. And uh, so the uh, sitting practice enables us to get a, start to um, gain a little bit of clarity or as to what's going on in our minds and the kind of thoughts we often experience by having, and the so the thought labelling is an important part of studying self. the self. Be forgetting the self is when she talks about experiencing. So when we move from noticing how we're getting caught in thoughts, labelling the thoughts, and returning to our experience, our experience of breath, our experience of sounds. That's the forgetting the self. That's really coming back to the exp- direct experience. Um, the other thing that uh, is important in her teaching is the actual concentration. In other words, just enough concentration but not too much. So, unlike in the passionate practice and in koan practice, where there's a lot of emphasis on concentration to cut through, we We just have enough concentration in order for us to actually be able to experience this moment. Um, So, you know, often in concentration the object might be counting of the breath or or a koan which is a simple phrase or a word. And by concentrating on that word actually we can miss out a lot on what's going on. So, if you want, so just enough concentration to uh, maintain that ability to sit still and be aware of the totality of our experience. Because again, if 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 we're just focusing on concentration, it might produce nice experiences, but um, it could again be another way of emotional bypassing. And also, it's not something that translates really easily into everyday life. So the kind of concentration we're doing in our sitting practice is something that when we get off the cushion, we can take it into our everyday lives. You know? So it's much more uh, a seamless practice. Because we want to get away from the dichotomy of oh, I'm doing a meditation, I've done my practice to, to doing that's a whole of our life being about practice in that sense. Um, one of the positive things about Maizumi, which I haven't mentioned though, and it comes up in the documentary too, is that he was, he did encourage his successes, like he, in the interview with bernie Glassman, he, he did encourage his American successes to adapt the Japanese forms to American culture, so he was wanting you know he, 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 and that was not easy for him sometimes to let go of his attachment to japanese forms and uh, so that that, that that idea of adapting um, the Japanese uh, Zen practice to is what we're doing here in adapting it to Australian culture. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bath water, but we want to adapt it to our culture. So, um, when Joko talks about experiencing, um, this is her, the way in which she turns around this rather than chasing a special breakthrough experience he wants us just to experience this moment no matter what this moment is and when we can just fully experience this moment that is it that is the absolute and um and uh, that's what we call buddha nature um, the, the direct experience of life um, uh, prior to the kind of constructions of that we bring in in terms of our human culture and our, and our minds and how we start to construct the world, but by returning to our direct experience, this is the absolute. And um, and she says that you know if you can do that even for a couple of minutes, that's p- pretty miraculous. So she's acknowledging the fact that to actually stay with our experience even for a few seconds is is is, is an accomplishment, it's something not easy to do because. Most of the time, we're centred in our minds. So that's where the thought labelling practice comes in. Um, Thought labelling can be seen as a kind of uh, decentering practice. What are we we decentering from? We're decentering from the self-centred self. We're decentering from the self-centred thoughts which create the self-centred emotions, the the sense of a separate self. and. so, when uh, there's nothing wrong with our self-centered thoughts, except that when we identify with them, that's uh, how we, uh, the view of what she calls reality gets blocked. In other words, the experiencing of just this moment gets blocked when we identify with our self-centered thoughts, which creates the dream, which creates the drama, which separates us from the reality of this moment. But when we're directly experiencing, we're experiencing non-separation from this moment. So she talks about, um, this is not an easy practice to do because our interest in just being with reality is is very low to begin with. It it seems boring to us because it's not something we've been a culture related to do. As children we are conditioned into uh, wanting to be entertained all the time. So you have to be constantly, you know, these days it's on our, on our phones, on our laptops, on our, the screens, uh, or whatever kind of it, whatever drama it is. But, so the actual practice of just staying with the reality of this moment to uh, cancing we have a very low interest in doing that. So sometimes when you first start sitting practice, you, you know, you're bumping up against a kind of um, resistance just to sitting just to experiencing the cars going past, the the fan noise, the the warmth, just this moment. So, um, the practice of thought labeling in in Joko's teaching, she talks about simply prefacing the thought with that having a thought. So, um, you know, we're having a thought, Um, Jesus is hot in here. So, you label the thought, having the thought, it's hot in here. Um, so, and she says you don't have to do this for the whole of a sitting period, but even if you just practice that five minutes of a, a sitting period, that's pretty good just to start to label your thoughts. It's also a practice you can you know, do in, more informally in your everyday life as well. Getting to know ourselves by labeling your thoughts. And as we label our thoughts, we de from our thoughts, we, we de-identify with them, and it, it just tends to take the emotional charge out of the, the kind of emotion that a thought can create. And so, as the thoughts quieten down, we just return to our direct experience over and over and over again. So, you know, experiencing is a, is a very important teaching and uh, he says that you know, we cannot point to anything inside or out which is not just experiencing. Um, we are experiencing, That's a, that is what we really are. And, uh, and of course, uh, experiencing itself is, has no boundary. And it's always now, experiencing is always now, you're always present when you're just directly experiencing. And then of course she moves on to, um, in terms of the other aspect of her teaching is everyday practice. So then she will she'll give some examples about typical situations or events that arise in our everyday life. The example she gives in the, the chapter we read was about um, like a work redundancy situation where someone's lost their job. And so we have the insecurity and the anxiety which arises. And then the typical reaction would be that we would start to worry and ruminate and we escalate the anxiety. Um, so she talks about, you know, it's okay to plan, but, you know, try and make that distinction between planning and, and obsessing or ruminating, sort of going over and over and getting caught in that uh, cycle all the time in the mind. Like in many ways, uh, um, Joker's teaching fits very well with, you know, c- contemporary cognitive behaviour and um, you know, she says things like thoughts produce an emotion, and we become even more agitated. All emotional agitation is caused by the mind. Um, another example we could take from everyday life—a very common example—is blaming others for what we are feeling. Um, you know, it's very our, our usual uh, orientation to life is external, so we focus a lot on other people's behaviour. so when we're feeling upset in some way and uh, you know it's very common that we'll blame someone else for our upset or for our anger Uh, rather than actually just taking responsibility for that anger or that upset and just directly experiencing it and and seeing clearly how our thoughts or how we're construing or interpreting the other person or the world is actually escalating that upset that we're experiencing. So this notion of, you know, getting caught in it's the other person that needs to change, it's very common in relationships. And if anybody ever wants to get into couple counseling, you'll experience that a lot. <laughs> so she says things like whether it's external events um, or internal events like an illness, the practice is still the same label all the thoughts that occur around them and we experience them in our body. And she says, the enlightenment state is simply experiencing life as it is. Um, another tip is to be, be aware and to be careful of, of, of not evaluating your practice. It's another very strong tendency where we'll start to evaluate our practice. Am I doing this correctly? Am I doing this right? Am I progressing along the path? You know, those kinds of thoughts are often very common in practice too. And uh, so label those as well. And um, and remember the, the the paradox that we're always working with in practice, which was you know originally formulated by Dogen, is that practice requires effort, okay? But also with everything's perfect just as it is, including ourselves. So you know, neither one is the truth. but body could put the both together, the both flip sides of the coin. We require some effort to practice, and also we're perfect just as we are. And she says things like, uh, um, We learn there is only one thing we can rely upon, and that is trust in things being as they are, is the secret of life. But of course, it's very not easy to do that, so we invest in our thoughts and we create the separate self. And at first we start to, you know, we feel our thoughts are real. And out of that we create the self-centered emotions and out of that we create the barrier, that which blocks us from experiencing life just as it is. Because if we're caught in our self-centered emotions we can't see people or situations clearly. And if we think thoughts are real, then we act out of them. But we can disinvest in those thoughts by thought labelling. So when we label a thought, we step back from it and we remove our identification. And if we persist in that practice, the emotional overlay begins to drop out. We can see then that our thoughts lack basic reality. And then we can see start to see more clearly the difference between a thought and a feeling. So, uh, you know, what's the difference between a thought and a feeling? You know, you walk into a room, say you're going to be... I was working with a young man the other day, had to take an exam for something. I was in a room full of strangers and we were talking about anxiety. And uh, I said, okay, well, you know, uh, what's the difference between uh, an anxious feeling and an anxious thought? So just throw that over to you. What's someone just give me quickly the difference between an anxious thought and an anxious feeling? Anybody? An anxious feeling might be a tightness in your chest thought so might be temperature it's the the, the feeling, the, the tightness in the belly or whatever the feeling might be we can, ex- in experiencing that directly, that's the reality of that moment. But if we, if we are able to take that thought away from that situation then there's no problem, it's just the tightness, the sensations of tightness in the belly and it doesn't get escalated. So one of the problems we all experience with emotions is the actual emotion we have about an emotion or the interpretation we have about emotions. And we often get those messages when we're very young. Uh, We all get different messages about emotions. And uh, so so many people are afraid of the anxiety of being anxious or the fear of being afraid. or we get messages that it's not okay to be to, to show sadness or cry and feel shame because you're crying, whatever. So it's really important then to start to see this distinction between feelings and thoughts. And the feeling is just life as it is. And uh, you can take the thought out of it. And once we've taken the, uh, the thoughts out of it, Joko teaches that action A more compassionate action will follow when we're grounded in life, just as it is, without it being mucked up by all these judgments and thoughts. A more compassionate action just naturally flow. We will naturally see what needs to be done. So, in two words, we can summarise the teaching about practice. First word, labelling, and the second word, experiencing. Labelling, experiencing, that's the basic fundamentals of the teaching practice. So just a few examples of some very common thoughts that we all experience. And tell me how you would practice with with each of these thoughts. Okay, first one. I know I'll mess up. That's the thought. I know I'll mess up. What's the practice? Anyone? Having the thought, I know I'll mess up. Here's another one. Anything less than perfect is a failure. What's the practice with that thought? Oh. Mm-hmm. Right. another one. She doesn't like me. <laughs> What's the practice? I'm having a thought that she doesn't like me. Yeah. Isn't isn't practice too deep? Yeah, that's the, I mean, yeah. then to, come to level the thought, come back to the direct experience. And, you know, yeah. You'll feel, and you notice how that thought has the impact on the on the body experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not just labeling, the, the next step is experiencing sensation before you go. Yeah, in, yeah, to go. Sitting in that. yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, Here we're just doing, just using examples of thought labelling, but the other practice is experience. So, um, I always make mistakes. Having the thought, I always make mistakes. I'm a loser. Yeah. Um, I'm dying. Um, yeah. Um, I hit a wrong note during that performance. Having the thought, I hit a wrong note during that performance. I'll freak out, and no one will help. I should never feel anxious. Having the thought, I should never feel anxious. The, 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 those thoughts were all taken from a, a, a CBT handout called Thinking Traps, And uh, one of the things about the CBT is quite interesting because they categorize the negative thoughts. You know, so like, i know I'll no mess it up, is, is an example of what they call fortune-telling. Um, that is, we predict things will turn up badly. Um, anything less than perfect is a failure, It's an example of what they call black and white thinking when we look at situations only in terms of good or bad, or success and failure. Uh, She doesn't like me, mind reading, how we're often assuming that we understand what someone else is thinking about us. I'll I'll always make mistakes, an example of, what's that an example of? When you use the always word, it's an example of overgeneralizing. When we use words like always or never, I'm a loser, we just call that labeling When we talk to ourselves in in mean ways using a single negative word, I'm dying, overestimating danger, you just come back from performing, Gareth gets off the stage and he comes up to me, oh god I hit the wrong note during that performance, we call that filtering, in other words we only focus on the bad stuff and never. There is no no (laughs) wrong (laughs) note. Maybe yeah. You did hit yeah, but that was a while ago. You've come off. That's that's, that's yeah. the thing that you've you've hung on to. You've gotten yeah. down. And you, you didn't still, see all the parts. Still, Yeah, yes, and, and and the fact is that nobody in the audience has noticed that you hit a wrong note. You're the only person that knows that. But like you're having a lot of you know, you're beating yourself up uh, well, not necessarily, necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> 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 True. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very common thing with performers that uh, I notice that even professionals who are doing it for a living will come off and, oh, they just focus on all the mistakes they yes. made. That's just and just Mm-hmm. And she it not witness most of yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I know, I'm mm-hmm. conscious of that too. I Many years ago, I, you know, I learned um, touch typing. And I, you know, um, I, had, I tried to learn the old-fashioned way the old you know, and just, it just didn't work. But there was this new program that was developed by these Australian educators who focused only on the positive, and they made a game out of it. And so you never had the chance to focus on the negative didn't keep making the same mistake all the time. They worked out the a folder it, and I learned pretty quickly. It was really good through me. Quite a few uh, musicians get attracted to Zen practice. Uh, Joko herself played the piano quite well, and, and uses that often in her teachings. Um, okay, and the last one, like, uh, I'll freak out, no one will help, is an example of catastrophizing, and, uh, I should never feel anxious, they should statements. I, mean, I must or must statements. I should never have mistakes. statements. And one of the good things about taking on a leadership role, like a chiquito role, is that uh, you often get to see uh, in practice, so often we get caught in that sort of an- that, that anxiousness about messing up and not doing it right, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's good practice. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> <laughs> ha,